Hello, everyone. My name is Brooklyn, and I am the instructor at Doctor at Academy. Today, I'm joined by Mike Bins and Brian Cartarella. And today, I believe Brian is going to be talking to us about LiveView Native. So, Brian, will you start us off? Sure. So, um, just a quick explanation on LiveView Native. I know I've talked about it quite a bit, but in case this happens to be the first time you're hearing about it, LiveView Native is a pure native client implementation for the LiveView programming model, uh, meaning that we are not doing um, like a WebView render of a LiveView application. Uh, we are actually using, uh, in the case of iOS, SwiftUI's composable composability um, to represent uh, SwiftUI views as um, essentially XML-esque markup in templates and relying upon LiveView to uh, cut and provide diffs over the wire. And then we reassemble those diffs. And then um, after every single update over the wire, we rewalk the now recomposed uh, essentially XML document and produce Swift native uh, Swift UI elements and inject these into the Swift UI view tree. Um, so I presented on this at ElixirConf last fall. Um, there's been a few blog posts uh, published on our progress. Uh, I came on this podcast, I think at least once and spoke about it. Um, and I've been offering regular, semi-regular updates on Twitter as to uh, the progress of the project. And I thought it'd be a good opportunity to come back on and provide a bit more detail as to, um, <clears throat> first of all, what we've been working on, our architectural direction um, and opinions that we've been uh, uh, kind of uh, working with, um, some of the roadblocks that we've hit, and um, hopefully a sense on, you know, when we, uh, the Elixir community can start building out native applications um, with LiveView Native. So um, at ElixirConf, uh, we showed off a fully functioning um, LiveView Native application, the ElixirConf chat app. This was deployed to the App Store, and um, people were able to download it, uh, use it, and uh, it worked. We had um, a SwiftUI client repository, uh, had about as much code in it that was necessary to get the chat application working. So we built towards that essentially. And um, at the time I had given an estimation on trying to set expectations around when some things would be done or really ready for uh, production uh, use. And uh, those estimations have come and gone and here's the reason why. So um, during that presentation, there was uh, kind of like the bigger, uh, roadmap or vision of how we're going to get or at least open the door towards other uh, native clients. And the, the big two, of course, are uh, target iOS and Android. And on the iOS side is Swift UI, is the composable UI library <coughs> that we're building against. And then on the Android side, um, there's Jetpack Compose. And uh, what would be nice too is in the near future, start talking about other platforms. So like Windows uh, targeting WinUI 3. Um, and at that point we have like almost like 99% of potential use cases covered. Um, but uh, what became clear was 
Live View itself not being like done in the sense that it's 1.0 means that we still would have to absorb uh, absorb any upstream public API changes that may occur. Um, and having multiple clients implemented with the Live View um, uh, like client model code meant that any upstream changes to Live View we would have to fix n times, n being the number of clients that Dockyard was supporting. So uh, I decided maybe a month after ElixirConf that what we're, what we were going to do was put a pause on some of the uh, development on the actual clients and extract out the Live View programming model, like essentially what is morphed on on, on JavaScript side, and then all of the Live View hooks and such uh, in, in JS and extract this out and rewrite it in Rust so that we have a common uh, library, we're calling it Live View Native Core, uh, that now we can just, we just have to fix upstream changes once and the any clients um, that should, and everyone should be building on Live View Native Core, but any clients that come about will just need to update their dependency uh, on Live View Native Core. And you know what's nice is that um, we should be able to just keep that as some sort of like version range that you're uh, depending against. The um, so that took some time. That took a little bit of time to get right, um, and we're still technically not done. Uh, we want to extract channels as well into Rust and put that into core, so that we have essentially all of the common um, API surface layer covered in core that any client library might want. And then it's really up to the client libraries to wrap their uh, their target um, uh, view library and essentially just match it up against uh, live view, which sounds simple, but it's actually, that's still a lot of work. Um, so uh, L is currently focused on re-implementing channels in Rust. And Paul was the one that built uh, the, the core uh, library. <clears throat> so that core landed uh, maybe a month or two ago, and um, we've been focused on just kind of going through the task list of the Swift UI views at this point. We, uh, in Swift UI itself, like Apple has multiple uh, view libraries at this point, like UI libraries. Uh, there's like MapKit, there's going to be um, Swift charts, uh, all these things. But these are outside the scope of what we're tackling at the moment. We're just trying to tackle like the base views that are exist in SwiftUI itself. So I think that we identified uh, that there were 75 or 74 views that we will be uh, essentially making, making work in uh, LiveView Native. And I believe today we're currently at 35 or 36 of them complete. So we're roughly a little bit below 50%. <laughs> I expect um, a lot of them to start landing pretty rapidly too in the next few weeks because the really difficult ones were the ones that the team focused on uh, up front because these required a lot of, um, I'd say, some rethinking as to what we're doing under the hood as well. For example, um, when it comes to uh, like data bindings, in in Swift, there's there are conventions for data bindings within Swift, and the, you can think of this as 
on the browser side with LiveView, kind of the same thing as the event listeners that using the PHX commands, uh, sorry, the PHX attributes would set up within a LiveView application. Um, essentially, we had to develop something that worked for that so that we could set up the two-way data bindings appropriately. Um, the, uh, uh, the other things that have come about of recently are, um, we started, so uh, during my presentation, I think too, I, I said that our goal was to not require any upstream changes in LiveView or Phoenix in order to work. And we've been trying really hard to avoid that ask, but just last week we had to make that ask. Um, and this, this has really come about because of, like LiveView was built for the web. It was built for HTML. And what we're producing in our templates kind of looks like HTML, but it's not HTML. So some of the um, validation and formatting constraints that are imposed upon HTML are ones that we were hoping to be able to deviate away from. Um, this has come about in a few areas. For example, LiveView doesn't support void tags. And there are many places that we want void tags uh, in LiveView native. Uh, the next one is, uh, we, we're like our convention is if you have a Swift UI view name, um, like that has camel casing in it, then you just go through like a hyphenation case uh, conversion of the name, and that gives you the corresponding um, element name to use in uh, in LiveView Native uh, on the template side. And this was fine at first, but some things didn't really like work very well for that, or we had to deviate from that convention a little bit for developer ergonomics. So for example, there are views called stacks and stacks are just a way for you to, uh, if you put multiple views in them, they'll just space them out properly. So there's HStack and you have an HStack uh, view. And then if you put like three sub views in there, they'll like, they'll render out one next to each other uh, horizontally left to right. And if you have VStack, then same deal. They'll, they'll render out uh, from the top down. But the view name and the capitalization of it in SwiftUI is capital V, capital S, stack. Like S, capital V, capital uh, S, stack. So VStack and same with HStack. And so using our convention, the ele corresponding element name would be H-stack or V-stack. And this gets a little bit more uh, verbose when there are concepts called lazy stacks, which essentially virtualize the rendering of uh, of, of, uh, of items. And that means that with a B stack, if it overflows off the bottom of the viewport, everything that you put in there is pre-rendered. And if you have, let's say a thousand items, um, the performance is gonna be terrible. Uh, just scroll performance. And so virtualization allows the scroll um, <coughs> size to be per, uh, uh, maintained. It allows all the elasticity of, of scroll uh, scrolling on uh, touch devices to be maintained. But the rendering doesn't occur until that element is approaching the viewport. And so by the time it gets into the viewport, it's rendered. Um, Depends on if there are network events and like the latency around the network events. So for example, if there are ASIC images on that item, you may still see like a low loading indicator. Um, 
But the point is, is that the, it doesn't matter how many items you put in there at that point, it's always going to feel very performant. Um, <clears throat> so all, anyway, all this to say, what we wanted to do was move over, get away from the hyphenated element names in LiveView Native's templates and just preserve the actual camel cased casing of the original Swift UI element names. However, um, LiveView Native through its HTML validator was, uh, sorry, not through the HTML validator, LiveView Native was making an assumption that if you had an element name that started with a capitalization, then it was a reference to a live, uh, live view component. And um, after some back and forth with Jose and Chris, we came up with a solution that's gonna allow us to deviate from that and still uh, make use of live view components. Um, and there are just like, like small tic-tac things uh, here and there when it came to how the constraints of HTML are being imposed upon us. So all this to say, uh, May had actually written in our own engine. And uh, Chris dropped into the channel one day and saw that work and was trying to convince us not to do this because of the maintenance costs of maintaining our own engine. And so, I mean, I, at that point, I was like, okay, then we're gonna have to ask for upstream changes in live view because we just can't do it the way that we want to. We're making too many sacrifices on the developer ergonomics and the API uh, that I'm comfortable with. So this started the conversation um, with uh, with Jose and Chris, and I believe what's going to come out of this is uh, Felipe, who's on the LiveView core team. I think the just regular Phoenix core team. I don't think LiveView has a separate core team, but um, he is working on some tokenization updates and hopefully some hooks on the engine that allow us to now essentially have our own engine that is going to inherit nearly all the behavior of you know, the underlying uh, core maintained engine, and then we just get our, you know, whatever deviations that we need. Um, and that should put us in a good spot. Um, but for the time being, we're still working off of our custom engine, uh, just so that we're not um, uh, blocked on certain developments of the client itself. The, uh, the next thing that's come about is we kind of got a little bit of a preview of some upcoming changes in Phoenix. Um, and for those that don't know, views as a concept in Phoenix are essentially being deprecated, soft deprecated, I think. And the uh, preferred method will be uh, components uh, moving forward. And so this uh, actually ended up solving, like the way that the application architecture is gonna be in that world, solved one of the big pain points that we were struggling with on LiveView Native, which was, so for each live view, um, we have platform information that we send during the initial connection that's just available to the, you know, to the connection. Um, so we know that if you connected with a Swift UI client or a Jetpack Compose client, and then there'll be like uh, specific device information that comes in as well to allow you to conditionally render out certain things. Like clearly you don't want the same layout or the same uh, elements rendering in landscape mode on iPad as you do in portrait mode on iPhone. Um, but uh, what was quickly becoming obvious was that in certain cases, we're gonna have to create live view components. And especially when it came to things like modifiers and Swift UI, which is how element styling is coerced, uh, these all become functions. And um, 
within the the current like 1.6 uh six was it 16 or 6 i think it's 6 16 on uh on phoenix um you know that template has access to every single function that's imported on the live view uh module that's rendering it so we were faced with the possibility of a lot of name collision amongst commonly used function names that may need to behave differently between the the different um platforms so for example a link uh may be expected to, to operate differently um uh between uh swift applications and then uh android applications so anyway all to say like what we were trying to avoid was having to now namespace everything under another module and then have it be like swift dot whatever jetpack dot whatever the way that it's I'm probably going to be like really uh, not doing a good job of explaining this, um, but the way I understand it is what we'll be moving for is that each template will have access to its own module namespace essentially, and so we will be able to in, in, import you know cleanly all unique function names directly into that module namespace and avoid all this you know annoyance around name collision. So there's um, some really good uh, enhancements to how we intend to architect LiveView native applications. And I think 117 is getting close to being ready. I know that like RC3 of it was December. We're now in like, almost mid-February. Um, there's probably gonna be one more RC, I would imagine. Uh, and then maybe in, in a month or two, I, I'm not going to quote dates. I don't know what the dates are, but we're closer than farther away, I would imagine, on 117. But I think that we'll probably be targeting 117 as the minimum Phoenix version um, that applications, that live native applications should be using for that reason. Um, what else have uh, have we been doing? So um, the Jetpack uh, Compose client, uh, we brought in a... Uh, uh, a new uh, engineer, and uh, he essentially rewrote the entire client. Um, and uh, these are all in the form of, uh, there's one really big PR and then some more atomic PRs that it has been going through code review for the past week or so. So I think we're probably another week away from that initial work being merged into the main branch on the Jetpack Compose client. And this essentially will set the, the framework for how we build out the Jetpack Compose client. Um, the um, the next steps on that is we have to integrate core into it. It it still is using its own like MorphDOM reimplementation uh, in the in in Kotlin. Um, this is going to allow us to really test and verify that having these multiple clients dependent on core was a good idea. I, I still think that it's going to be beneficial. Uh, we just don't know like the the bindings and everything we exposed on core were to the service of the Swift UI client. We have not integrated it to anything else yet, so um, this will be a good test. Uh, and then that developer will actually be joining, um, after that uh, integration is complete, that developer will be joining the Swift UI uh, client team for maybe a month or two. And the reason for that is at Dockyard, I'm managing multiple R&D projects at the moment and running the company. And so I'm spread pretty thin. Um, and I'm starting to lose a little bit of sight on the detail when it comes to uh, kind of 
uh, coaching that the Jetpack Compose client on some of the API um, implementation. Um, we have a standard kind of acceptance criteria uh, for everything in, in Live Native that we have to be thinking about, can this be used by a junior developer? You know, it's easy enough to get into us to develop uh, a, a tool and a framework that senior engineers could be able to figure out. But that's not really what we're going for here. We're trying to create something that will be as easy as writing HTML and CSS ultimately. Um, you know, some of the configuration, we're not gonna be able to get away from having to set up like clearly Xcode and uh, whatever other clients, the native development environment. Um, and there's always gonna be reasons to do stuff in the native client uh, code. But for the most part, we're hoping that majority of application development will stay in LiveView Native. In the same way that even with LiveView, you can't get away from having to touch JavaScript every now and then. It's just a necessity of uh, whatever your particular use case may be. But um, we, uh, uh, we're hoping that um, this will be enough time for that engineer to really start to see how we've been organizing and developing the SwiftUI client. and then. He takes those lessons back to the Jetpack client and um, starts to move forward on those. The, um, <clears throat> you know, what we're finding too is uh, the complexity on the SwiftUI side is very, very high uh, compared to the Jetpack client side. I, I think that um, despite us having had more time implementing the SwiftUI client and more people on it, um, there could be a potential that the, Swift, the Jetpack Compose client may not be too far behind in its like getting all of its features covered uh, compared to the, um, the SwiftUI client. There's just less views to do, and the uh, the really <coughs> excuse me the really kind of like something we've struggled with, and I've tweeted about this, is how do we properly represent modifiers on LiveView Native and um, Modifiers are uh, the way you style uh, SwiftUI views. And the way that they are represented in SwiftUI is they're essentially um, like key value. Well, it's not key value pairs. They're, they're uh, I mean, it's just like a chain. It's a chain of function calls off of the original view, and it will just continue to modify that views uh, configuration. Um, the, the the tricky part though is that uh, you don't have like one level uh, of depth there. You have each like function call can take sub function calls, and on top of that, modifiers could take views, which really blows up the complexity here, because we can't represent the modifiers in a like a like a CSS style at that point. You know, we'd have to then have to go like, and like the view that gets passed into a modifier could have its own set of modifiers. So it, it's something that we have to do in the template, at least we feel like at the moment. We have a wire format that's essentially like a marshaled serialization of the modifiers that get sent over the wire that works fine. And it's, it's actually, that that's like our, that's how we're gonna be sending the data and that's there. But what we've really uh, struggled with is how do we, you know, what's our DSL? or making this very simple to write. And where we've kind of landed at the moment 
is there was a uh, uh, a proposal a few months ago from someone not on the core team, and they I think they had a good good idea with using Elixir's pipe operator. Um, this is how you clean up like deeply nested chaining, um, like function chaining, in uh, <coughs> imperative languages at least. But that only really provides that one level of depth. So how do you properly represent that uh, multi-tier of depth? And that's something that we've kind of been bouncing around back and forth on. May had a proposal that was functionally correct, but it was complex in the implementation. And I don't think it met the, like the smell test on being easy for a junior developer. So we unfortunately had to shelve that idea. But I think some of what she wrote is sticking around in the sense of what we're currently using. And then Carson, who is um, one of the uh, Live Native uh, SwiftUI engineers, he has a proposal, an RFC currently, um, that we've been going back and forth on. It's definitely far simpler. It keeps everything in the template. But what is still not clear to me, and what we really have to get to, is starting to build applications with this and seeing what feels good. We're, we're kind of working off of somewhat trivial use cases at the moment. And as I've uh, come to learn, SwiftUI modifiers can get pretty deep and complex in their uh, in their organization. So, like, there's there's an exit hatch there. Though you could essentially create a new element, a uh, new view on the SwiftUI side that uh, encapsulates all those modifiers within it, and then takes like one or two configuration options and then expose that through the custom view registry on LiveView Native. And now you just reference that custom element name. Um, and you avoid all that that like deep modifier stuff, and that that may be the way to go in terms of uh, like refactoring of live native applications. But what I'm really hoping for is that um, what we're doing at the moment is going to satisfy the needs for quick prototyping and then production application development, because that's the sweet spot when it comes to any technology. You, know, you have uh, so many uh, technologies and web technologies I've been exposed to in my career that are like technically good, that are very powerful in their, um, their purpose and their use case, but don't prototype very well. And so what you end up having is more senior engineers gravitate towards that solution, but companies don't end up adopting it because they can't really go out and find people to work in it. Uh, this is why I'm very, focused on making sure that junior engineers can, can work in this because that implies that this is going to have easy and quick prototype capabilities. But then some frameworks and some tools err on the opposite side. They're really good at prototyping, but when it comes to like actual like complexity, they, they fall apart very quickly. What I've seen some frameworks do, which I don't want to do either, is so there was for a long period of time, they're probably still out there somewhere, but it was like a list of all frameworks implementing the same uh, to do application in JavaScript. And uh, some of these frameworks started producing API that was that accelerated that particular use case. So they were good at prototyping. This API surface was added specifically for the marketing in that particular use case, but no one ever used that API for doing anything serious. Uh, so we, we got to like that's the balance we're trying to strike here and something that we're keeping in mind and something that's really important, I think, for the success of the project. So 
Um, beyond uh, beyond the Swift UI uh, views themselves, we've started to scope out many of the other uh, UI libraries in Apple's ecosystem. And I think very shortly after we get Swift UI's views covered, um, we're probably going to try to cover Swift charts. Um, as I understand it, Swift charts is the first Swift UI, like 100% Swift UI view library that Apple's produced. Like many of the other things like MapKit and such, I think straddle the line between Swift UI and, and UI Kit uh, for uh, Objective-C um, uh, built applications. I could be speaking a bit like more in the, like maybe not as current as my knowledge is, but uh, the, um, the nice thing about Swift charts too is that they're going to demo very well, which is also really good for adoption. You know, it, when we've created the screenshots and the little videos of the Swift UI example apps, they look really good. And then the, the reality of Jetpack, uh, I mean, you, you can style it any way you want ultimately, but the default styling is really uh, material design, which feels very dated nowadays and still looks, to me at least, I think web in terms of its application, not necessarily uh, native. That could just be because I'm not a regular Android user. But I just think that the, the screenshots that we see come out of the Jetpack Compose examples just don't, um, they're not as much eye candy as the, the iOS ones. And so I, you know, there's a, another, again, I'll say the same term, but we, we have to strike that balance between getting things done and also gathering attention and adoption. And so a lot of that comes with the wow factor and Swift UI definitely demos better and Swift charts is gonna demo really nicely. So that's really where our focus is um, and hopefully get some more people into using this. The uh, the last part I'll say is uh, as much as the, the modifier discussion on the Swift UI side of things has been uh, complex and, and difficult, a bit of a struggle on the, um, on the Jetpack Compose side, it's actually the opposite. They're very simple and they're going to be essentially key value pairs like adders on the element names. And uh, that's the benefit of having a very flat system. Um, we have not really hit like implementation scale yet on the Jetpack Compose side. So I don't want to say I'm married to that statement just yet, but it seems like that's going to be the case. I'm hoping that we're going to, um, I mean, in terms of like functional views and such, uh, people could probably definitely start playing with uh, Live View Native today. I know some early people did right after the conference and then we shut, like development looked like it was lagging because of core. Um, but a lot of the views are very, very useful today. We're actually gonna start, so I took the original uh, Phoenix Live View example repo that Chris put together when Live View was first introduced at ElixirConf U back in 2021. Um, I don't know if that reveal date's correct, but a few years ago. And it has that thermostat, like Nest thermostat recreation application in it. It has a few other examples of like Live View use cases. And um, we're gonna start building applications around like the, the Live View native version of this. So we're just gonna take the repo, we're gonna update Phoenix and Live View in it. Um, and then I hope every other week we'll be reproducing a new, like here is the Live View Native version of this demo. And 
the, the stated design goal is to make it look identical to what Chris wrote. Um, it's just in native. So there are certain modifiers that we're prioritizing at the moment because Chris used gradient colors on the thermostat. So we have to get gradient background colors in. Um, and uh, uh, we're not gonna be publishing that to the app store, but we'll at least just be taking videos and sharing the progress with the community. So those uh, should start, hopefully be seen in the next two weeks. Um, and then every other week for a few weeks, we'll be doing that. Leading up to ElixirConf, um, I'm hoping that we get another uh, good speaking position. And uh, what we're really gonna be building during that presentation is showing like the business value of LiveView Native at that point. And so what we're hoping that presentation will be is something that engineers that are excited about this technology can go to their boss and say, hey, watch this. This is why we need to start using this technology. And the, the whole premise is gonna be based around um, ease and cost of implementing uh, cross-platform with LiveView Native compared to other solutions. And even with React Native, um, you know, if, we're, if we have a pre-existing LiveView web application, then our goal is all you're hopefully really having to do is provide a new LiveView Native template for your platform. And you can stand up a, uh, uh, you know, a concurrent um, LiveView Native application that is sharing data between that and whatever other like, target clients that you're working with uh, very, very fast. Um, and I'll, I'll make it a bit more, you know, not as concise an explanation as that. I'll go into details and hopefully also we'll have some data to show. Uh, I plan on shopping around a few like app ideas to some native application shops and then getting their estimations on it. And then we'll be building it ourselves. And, you know, what's the outcome at that point? Are, are we validating that this is costing less money to implement? Are we validating it's costing less time to bring to market? Um, these are the, the questions that we need to start answering. And if we have yeses on both of those, I think that we're gonna be in a pretty good spot to uh, really uh, hopefully make a dent with this technology. That's incredibly exciting. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing more about how LiveView Native grows. Uh, I think it, is going to expand the Elixir community in a massive way, being able to write Elixir where you want to write Elixir. Uh, so I know that a lot of people have been really excited to track progress, so. Yeah, the, like, I think, not, not that this is a knock or anything, but Elixir has a reputation outside of itself as being a web technology. And that's, you know, due to Phoenix and like just how important Phoenix is, but, that that's just the way that it was the low hanging fruit, essentially. Not to say that Chris's efforts have not been uh, monumental in implementing Phoenix, but it was the uh, like first couple steps that got people interested. If Elixir just stayed as the language and didn't have Phoenix, um, maybe it would have grown or maybe you know been known for something else. But right now, it's just known as web. And I'm hoping that in the next year, maybe this year that reputation starts to really expand. You know, we don't wanna lose our reputation, of course, for being known for web, but I think that it has the potential for being known uh, for other uh, technologies as well. The NARP has been around for a while, but it's 
uh, I mean, that's a really tough nut to crack the IoT space. Um, but machine learning with NX, this is going to become, I think, a very important project to the evangelization of the technology. Uh, what we're doing with LiveView Native, uh, being able to build out uh, and integrate with other uh, client technologies than just JavaScript and HTML, this increases the scope of where Elixir can be used and will uh, give companies reasons for adoption as opposed to saying, because that, that's like actually the biggest, I think the, the biggest strategic threat to the success of Elixir is actually React. And React is not a language, of course, it's a framework. Um, but I look at it as Elixir is an ecosystem and, and React has become an ecosystem. So if I compare ecosystems, that I think is the biggest threat to it because React has its own web framework. It has React Native and it has React as a backend server now. You, like you can have one team build and be interchangeable between those different functions. And while the problems you're always solving are not the same on server as you are on client and for native, but the, the language and some of the uh, uh, design patterns and all this are gonna be familiar enough that engineers should be swappable, at least to a degree, uh, within, those, um, you know, within those parts of the stack. And for companies, this is, like, this is what they want. They want to you know, focus on hiring one specific expertise, manage one specific expertise, and build within that. And so we, we've had a lot of companies over the time you know, come to us, they want Phoenix as an API, and then using React Native in the front, uh, sorry, using React and React Native on the front end. And th this is part of what motivated us to pursue LiveView Native as kind of a counterpoint answer to that. Um, and I think the way that we're building it out is, uh, I mean, it wouldn't have been possible to build what we're doing right now with, with React Native because Swift UI didn't exist when React Native was being built. In fact, Swift UI came about because React Native proved that building composable UI uh, on native made sense and was better. But um, we are, uh, I mean, we're kind of faced with a, uh, a must-have solution that, that needs to exist here if we want to grow and continue to uh, get adopters and continue to have companies say, yeah, we're going to invest in this technology because outside of it being cool, companies don't really care about that. The engineers care about that. Companies care about, okay, can I hire for this? Is it going to cost me a lot of money? Is it going to be a, main, a nightmare to maintain years from now? And so the the... The big problem that we're really faced outside of, um, you know, the cost consideration is the hiring question, which of course Brooklyn, which is why you're at Dockyard, you know, helping in like do our part to to uh, to pay into that to a degree. Um, and then I don't think that there's any technology out there that can really beat Elixir in terms of the the long term maintenance question. There, that's something that is, um, I think, an undervalued statement that we are not doing a good job selling enough, especially to large enterprise companies. But if we can answer these other questions around cost, around like uh, resource availability, expertise, and things like that, then the, the, the maintenance question just becomes a value added at that point. It's, it's not something that's gonna be automatic. You know, one thing I always uh, really hit the Ember community for pretty hard was they had this 
I think, uh, misguided concept that if you build it, they will come. And Ember is a great technology, but you know people don't come unless you ask them to come. And so building the technology is like 5% of the effort here. You have to build it and then you have to sell it. You have to convince people. You have to actually make comparisons and differentiations between what's out there. That's something that a lot of framework developers are very hesitant to do. They don't like the, you know, the, uh, the kind of, it's not a battle, but there's just this reluctance to make comparisons to other people's efforts because it's being seen as, you know, you dogging somebody else, but that's not the goal there. You know, Facebook has, sorry, React has Facebook backing it with billions of dollars and presumably tens to hundreds of dollars in marketing that's occurring. We need to be able to actually draw, like, what are the differences here? Why you, why make this choice over that choice? It's not that we're crapping on React or the, the, the efforts there, but it's necessary to talk about these differences so that people that are making a decision can make an informed decision and decide for themselves that, okay, here, here is why I would choose React over React Native over LiveView Native. And in this case, here's why I would choose LiveView Native over React Native. That's really where we have to get to. Um, so, so part of uh, you know heading towards when we're getting most of the API surface covered in LiveView Native, uh, Brooklyn, you and I spoke about this the other day. We're gonna try to create like course content in the same way that Brooklyn's done for Docker Academy for LiveView Native. Um, I don't. I still have to you know ping Jose about this. I don't know if it's possible, but it'd be pretty awesome if we can like in a live book actually produce. LiveView native templates that then we run it. And then, you know, if we have the simulator running, everything's all automatically hooked up and we just see the, the result of that. Um, if we can get that going, I think that's going to be an awesome education platform for evangelizing um, uh, uh, LiveView native as a technology. Um, the, uh, the last parts are <coughs> like some of the stuff that we're hopefully going to get done in the next few weeks. Um, we are waiting for an upstream change in Rust itself for, uh, there's like support for uh, target device compilation. And Rust includes a lot of Apple devices uh, in that list, but the one device it's currently not included is Apple TV. And the PR is done, but it's just been sitting there waiting to get, I think it, it needs to be um, rebased uh, and then merged in. Uh, the, the developer that had implemented it, um, he said he's going to get to it. And so hopefully that gets done. That opens us a path to uh, Apple TV development. And at that point, we have, you know, we're compiling for uh, iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch. I posted one or two Apple Watch screenshots on Twitter already. Um, Apple TV, Mac OS. And I'm, I'm hoping that when this Apple augmented reality VR headset comes out, that it's using Swift UI, and then we're going to try to make a live view native uh, application against that. So it's a, it's a pretty exciting time at the moment. Um, we're putting in a ton of, uh, you know, a ton of time, ton of effort on this. And um, I'm really hoping that um, we start to see some really cool projects and companies using this technology uh, over the, you know, even this year, and start to get involved with it. Um, if anybody is watching this podcast and checks it out and is interested, you know, come and talk to Dockyard. We're, we're looking for some early development partners um, that are uh, willing to, uh, to try out this technology. 
Yeah, same here. I'm incredibly excited about the opportunities it presents, particularly in the, I can see it expanding the space for juniors to enter Elixir. It's a new mm -hmm. path and avenue. And often a lot of junior devs go through the mobile path. So that's a huge opportunity. Um, in terms of education, uh, being able to create some educational content about this, just to set expectations, this at this point, uh, that education effort hasn't started yet. There's, you yeah. know, that, that'll be down the pipeline just to make sure we set expectations there. It literally popped um, in my head yesterday. So exactly. <laughs> brand new as of yesterday. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I know we all have some hard stops coming up. So is there anything else that you want to bring up before we uh, call it a session? Uh, no, I think um, good for now. Perfect. We'll, in we'll, that case, we'll try to do, as we're getting closer to, I say, a release, um, maybe that's next time we do another roundtable on Live Native. And I'll try Perfect. to bring on some of the, uh, the core team members too. Awesome. Um, so I want to say a huge thank you to everyone for listening to the Elixir Roundtable. Uh, we have episodes where we talk about the goings on at Dockyard. You can get up updates on Live Native, updates on things in the community. Um, so keep following if that's something that you're interested in, interested in. And we will catch you all on the next episode.